The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when He shall come again in His glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through Him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 5 today, beginning this new section of this epistle as we are working our way through it. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open or log on to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to go ahead and read through the first 20 verses of this section of the epistle. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your hearts. Paul, in this section of Ephesians that precedes the verses that I've just read, has been talking about the importance of walking out of step with the world. He's been saying that we are not to be like the culture around us. As Christians, we are called to be salt and light. We are to have a leavening influence upon the world. He said, therefore, we are to put off the works of darkness and we are to put upon us the armor of light. That's the reason I chose as our opening prayer today that colic from the first Sunday of Advent, which asks us to do just that. We're not in Advent, of course, anymore, but it was an appropriate colic for what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Ephesians. And he says, if you want to know how to do that, if you want to know how you are to put off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, how it is that you are to walk differently from the world, he sums it all up in the first verse of chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. That's the bottom line. If you want to know how to live this Christian life, if you want to know how to live in such a way that you will make a difference, not just for a time, not just for a season, but for all eternity, Paul says, live as imitators of God 
of God. Imitators of God. Next to the Bible, there are far probably few books that have had a more profound impact upon Christians throughout the centuries than a book written by Sir Thomas Akempis back in 1420. The book was entitled On the Imitation of Christ. Now, there have been some classics of Christian literature throughout the centuries. Certainly, Augustine's Confessions, a great autobiography of the Christian life and of his own struggles to become a follower of Christ. Uh, certainly, great works of theology like Calvin's Institutes have had a profound impact on Western Christianity. But in terms of Christian devotion, there are few books that have had a more profound impact next to the Bible than that book by Thomas Akempis. Thomas Akempis was a priest uh, in the medieval church. Uh, he joined a pietistic movement of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. It's really a misnomer to call it the Roman Catholic Church. It was just the Western Church at that time. But he recognized that he needed to follow Christ as closely as possible. And not merely, as we say, talk the talk, but he wanted to walk the walk. And he wrote this book. And when you think about the circumstances surrounding his life, and you think about the time in which he lived, it's really quite extraordinary what he was trying to do. Thomas Akempis was born in 1380, he died in 1471, and he lived in one of the most difficult periods in history, in recorded history, one of the most difficult times in all of Western culture. It was a time, first of all, of intense turmoil. Uh, the church itself was deeply divided. There were actually two rival popes at the time, there was one pope sitting in Rome on St. Peter's throne, claiming to be the head of the church and the heir to the apostolic tradition. And there was a rival pope who had set up his throne in Avignon, France. And so this was a time when the church was rent and divided in the Western world. We see very much the similar situation in the world today. The church is divided and rent and uh, rent asunder and in conflict. Not only that, but it was a time in which there was great political confusion. This was the period of the Hundred Years' War from 1337 to 1453, in which the Plantagenets were up against the House of Valois for the control of the French throne. Uh, the English and members of the French uh, royal ruling family were contending for uh, France and its throne. This was in many respects the, the First World War, if you will, and other Different countries and different um, kingdoms were dragged into this. It was also a time in which the Black Death was decimating Europe. Between 75 and 200 million people were dying at this point in history during the, the time in which Thomas Akempis lived. So it was a time of intense corruption. It was a time of unrest. It was a time of great disillusion, uh, very similar to the times in which we live today. And Thomas Akempis realized that it was the job of the church, it was the job of the Christian to somehow shine a light in this dark world, a world that was rent by wars and rumors of wars, in which people were dying by the millions because of disease in a time before modern medicine. It was a time when the church itself was failing, unfortunately, moral failings and uh, a failure of leadership. And it was during this time period that Thomas Akempis wrote this book, of the imitation of Christ. Now, I'm not going to tell you all about that book except to commend it to you. I, I will say this much. While many people have been richly blessed by it, it is not one of my favorite books. But I can't deny the fact that it has had a profound impact on Christians throughout the centuries. 
And what I think is significant is that in the midst of all of this, you say, well, what's the antidote to all of the problems of this world? I mean, here was a priest speaking. He wanted to speak into the culture. What, what do we do when people are dying and they're asking questions and they're wondering where God is when the church cannot speak because it's become so morally compromised, when there are wars and people are fighting against each other and thousands are dying on the battlefield? What can the church do in a situation like that? What can the individual Christian do in a time like that? And Thomas Kempis said, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. That's the most important thing he said that you and I can do. Well, in a sense, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 5. His was a time that was filled with great confusion. It was a time of which the church was just beginning, and it was under great persecution. It was a time of great difficulty. And Paul calls on the Ephesians, in the midst of that confusing culture, to be imitators. But Paul does it in a slightly different way. Paul here in Ephesians chapter 5 doesn't actually say be imitators of Christ. Now that's what we would expect Paul to say, but that's not actually what he says. What he says is what? He says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now you might say, well, it's the same thing. Well, it is the same thing, and it isn't the same thing. It is the same thing in the sense that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, God incarnate. The only way that you and I can come to know God personally, we can know about God by means of general revelation, by means of the fact that God reveals Himself in the things that have been made, true. But we only come to know God personally through the person of Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say be an imitator of Christ. He says be an imitator of God. What he really means here is be an imitator of your Father in heaven. You are to follow in the footsteps of God the Father. Now, if you think about it, that makes our task somewhat difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> because there is a sense in which you and I are nothing like God. We say that God is holy, H-O-L-Y, and that is true. But theologians have pointed out that God is also wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, which is to say that God is in a completely different category from you and from me. And so imitating Him is an extremely difficult thing to do, especially when you consider what theologians sometimes refer to as God's incommunicable attributes or qualities. What are God's incommunicable attributes? Well, the first is what we might call self-existence. God always was, and God always will be. He is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. It's interesting to note how the Bible begins. Read through those first chapters of Genesis again, or just the first few verses. In the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's interesting to note that the Bible is giving us an account of the creation, but it doesn't say anything about God. It, it simply starts with the assumption that God is. There are no philosophical arguments whatsoever in the book of Genesis for the existence of God. It starts with the fact that God is the true, the absolute. In the beginning, what? God. And everything else flows from that. Now, God is self-existent. You and I are not. The, the, the best that you and I can say is, I am what I am by the grace of God. God simply says, I am. He is self-existent, and because He is self-existent, this is very important, He's not accountable to anyone. 
You know, we have a tendency to sit in judgment of God, don't we? We say, well, I could never believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. Well, which is human beings, creatures, sitting in judgment of the one who created them. <laughs> how did the Apostle Paul say it? He said, that is absolute hubris. How, how in the world can a human being, how can the pot say to the potter, why have you made me this way? So we need to understand that God, because he is self-existent, he's not accountable to anyone. If there's any standard of morality, guess what? He sets it. There's this department in Washington, D.C. called the Office of Weights and Measures. <laughs> and it has the standard for all weights and measures. That's what God is. God is the Office of Weights and Measures in an ultimate sense. He is self-existent and he's not accountable to anyone. He's not answerable to you and to me. We are answerable to him. Second thing is this, God is self-sufficient. There is nothing that God needs that he cannot provide for himself. Now, you and I would like to think that we're self-sufficient, but the reality is we're not. <laughs> we cannot, in an ultimate sense, supply all of our needs for ourselves. The very fact that you and I eventually have an appointment with death is an indicator of that fact. But God, on the other hand, is self-sufficient. He's not dependent. This is one of the reasons why it is pure folly to try and make a deal with God. You ever try to make a deal with God? Oh, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. As if though God needs anything from you and from me. As if there's anything that we could possibly offer to God that should be excited to him. So God is self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's eternal. We've already said that. That means he has no beginning. He has no end. He always was, he always will be, he is eternal. And what that means is that he is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now that's not true for you and for me, is it? We change our styles, our interests, our beliefs oftentimes evolve or develop over the course of time. We don't remain the same. There's that Facebook challenge O'Brien mentioned it one Wednesday night where you uh, post a, a, a present-day picture of yourself and a picture of yourself 10 years ago. Remember that? Uh, 10 years ago? And, and you compare the two. How many of you think you've improved like a fine wine over the course of time? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I found it to be a case of diminishing returns. Because we're not eternal, you see. But God is. He is unchanging. God is omnipotent. That is to say, He is all-powerful. Now, that is not to say, when we say God is all-powerful, that, that God can do all things. That's not really what the Bible means. Actually, there are some things that you and I are capable of doing that God is not capable of doing. Sin, Sin is the perfect example of that, of course. It's contrary to His character. But it does mean that God is all-powerful. He calls all things into existence by the sheer power of His Word. Let there be light, and there is light. That's absolute power. And you and I do not have absolute power. Whatever power, whatever authority we have, it is a derived authority. God is omnipresent, which is to say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
He is all things. Now, when I say all things, what I mean is that his power, his life-giving, sustaining power pervades all things. I don't mean that God is literally in all things. God is certainly not in that bottle of drink that is killing your relative who's afflicted with alcoholism. That's not what I mean. But what I do mean is that God's sustaining power over the universe is in all things. And finally, God is majestic, and He is holy. I don't mean that He's just good. I mean that He is magnificent beyond all measure, and He is in a category all His own. So when Paul says, be imitators of God, we look at the character of God and we think to ourselves, how in the world can we do that? Because there is a sense in which you and I are nothing like God. And yet there is a sense in which God, in His mercy, having made us in His image, does allow us to share some of His characteristics. Not these incommunicable attributes, but certainly what theologians call his communicable attributes. We are made in the image of God. We are a reflection of His glory. And incidentally, this is one of the things that makes human beings unique. This is why human life is of infinite value and of greater value than any other creature on earth. Now that's significant because we are living in an age in which people love their pets. Yesterday, as a matter of fact, we've got a new puppy at the house, so if I look tired, that's the reason. I feel like we've had a new baby all over again. We had to go out and buy puppy food yesterday because we ran out, and we went to Petco. When I was growing up, there was no such thing as Petco, a grocery store for dogs. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Well, we live in an age in which people love their pets. We even have dog care. I saw this. A woman walking along the street with a baby carrier in which there was a dog. That's the world in which we live. And don't get me wrong, I am a dog lover. Any cat lovers out there? Okay, well, I'll be praying for you today. <laughs> but we love our dogs, and we love our cats, and we love our pets. And by golly, sometimes we love our dogs more than we love our neighbor. Because the dog at least is compliant, which is more than we can say sometimes for our neighbor. But do we realize that that dog's life is not of equal value with that of a human being? Why? Because we've been made in the image of God. And God bestows upon us some of His own attributes, not the least of which is the ability to reason of all the creatures, you and I live in such a realm that we are actually above time and aware of the fact that time is passing us by. That's extraordinary when you think about it. And God gives to us not all of His qualities, but certainly some of His qualities, and He bestows it uniquely upon human beings. For example, the idea of justice. There is no other creature on earth that understands the notion of justice that recognizes that there are such categories as right and wrong. Read the opening chapters of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He says this very notion of right and wrong, this notion of fair play is literally hardwired into us. He said you can go into the most primitive society in the world 
in which they've never been taught anything. They, they don't have any rudimentary knowledge of the things that we have a knowledge of. And he said, you give one child an orange and another child an orange, and the one child devours his orange before the other, and then he grabs the orange from the other child, and the other child says, that's not fair. Well, where does that notion of fair play come from? He said, it's hardwired into us, you see. Wrath. That is to say... Uh, something within us that wells up whenever there is a sense of injustice. When we see something that is unfair or cruel, there is something that rises up within the human being that is angry at that. Where does that come from? No other creature. Another creature can be very temperamental, it can be very protective of its owners, but it does not have a sense of justice or injustice and a wrath that flows from that. Wisdom. Now, even if you believe in modern evolutionary theory, you still have to ask the question, when was the last time that a bonobo or a chimpanzee or one of the great apes produced a work of literature? When was the last time that they built a library or wrote a symphony? Even if you believe that God used an evolutionary process to bring about the human being, you still have to acknowledge the fact that at some point God did something else. He bestowed upon one of these pre-Adamic hominids, or whatever it was, his image, and that made us unique. It made us stand out. It made us different. It's been said that human beings are the only ape that blush. The only apes that blush. And the only apes that need to. <laughs> See, that's part of what it means to be a reflection of God, his wisdom. Faithful. Dogs can be loyal, but faithfulness is another matter. Faithfulness is another matter. Goodness, mercy, compassion, tenderness, forgiveness. All of these, you see, are God's communicable attributes. Yes, He is the Alpha and the Omega. Yes, He is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, and we are nothing like that. But God is also merciful compassionate, tender. And he allows us to be those things as well. So while it is very difficult, because God is perfect in all of these ways, nevertheless, by his grace, by his power, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, it is possible for us to be imitators of God in the sense that it really matters, in the sense that it makes a profound difference in the world. And the best way, perhaps, to be an imitator of God is to be loving. Isn't that what Paul says here in chapter 5, verse 1? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and what? Walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To be an imitator of God, therefore, is to be ultimately loving. As I said um, before last week, it's important to remember that the chapter divisions that we have in the New Testament were put in the Middle Ages, in the medieval period, to help us read the Bible, but they were not originally there. This was a letter that Paul wrote to a church, and Paul didn't divide his letters into chapters. And so I think it's important to allow chapter 4, verse 32, which is the last verse of chapter 4, flow right into chapter 5, verse 1. What does Paul say in chapter 4, verse 32? He says, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be kind, be tenderhearted, forgive one another. In other words, imitate God. Because that's how God has been toward you. That's what Paul is saying there. Now, love is an important subject for us to discuss. It's important because we misunderstand love today. I mentioned this last week that in Greek, there are four different words for love. One of the words is the word eros, from which we get the term erotic. Uh, it means romantic love. It really means physical attraction more than anything else. Then there is love known as storge, which means a sort of homely affection. I think I described it as the kind of affection that a man has for his golden retriever. Then there is what is known as philia, from which we get the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and that's a term as well. And then there is the highest form of Greek love, and that is agape, and that is a self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. That is the word for love that is used in John 3.16 to describe God's love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now what is interesting is that the word that we are most accustomed to hearing about in our present culture is which one? Eros, that, that's the one, the physical attraction, uh, the lust, whatever it may be, that's what we are familiar with in our culture. Are you aware of the fact that of the four Greek words for love, that's the only one that does not appear anywhere in the New Testament? That's the only one. Storge appears, philia appears, and agape appears, but there's no reference anywhere to eros, <laughs> even though that's the one that we have a tendency to put all the focus on in our time in our culture. No, we are to be imitators of God in the sense of that agape love. Paul says, forgive one another. That's the first thing. True love is forgiving in nature. Now, that's not to say that it doesn't acknowledge sin's gravity. It doesn't mean that when somebody does you wrong, you simply pretend that it wasn't a bad thing. One of the things we have to remember about God is that He is holy. There are standards of right and wrong. There are some things that are always right, and there are some things that are always wrong. And there are going to be times in your life when people are going to do you wrong. And when they do you wrong, it is truly wrong. It was wrong when they did it. It will always be wrong if they do it again. So I'm not suggesting to you that when somebody does you a terrible wrong, that you simply say, well, it's no big deal. Sometimes it is a big deal. Let's just face it. What we did to Jesus Christ on the cross was a grievous wrong. And Walter Russell Bowie, who was a professor at my old seminary, wrote a wonderful hymn to this called, Lord Christ, When First Thou Camest to Earth. And in there he has a line that says, and still our wrongs may weave thee now new thorns to pierce that steady brow and robe of sorrow place round thee. In other words, it's not just what they did to Christ back then. Every time you and I sin, we plait that crown of thorns again. We drive the nails through his hands. We pierce his side with the spear. Sin was always wrong. It is wrong, and it always will be wrong. 
but to be forgiving, loving in the sense that God is loving means that while you acknowledge that sin is a terrible thing and that people do terrible things, you also acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner and God in Christ forgave you. And it's on the basis of the fact that He forgave you that you choose to forgive others. You choose to forgive others. What's the song say? Love is just a second-hand emotion. Well, first of all, it's not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice. And forgiveness is a choice. We choose to forgive. That's what, do you think Jesus felt like forgiving anybody when He's hanging there on the cross and people are railing against Him and He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you think He felt like it? No, but He chose to forgive. And in so doing, He sets us an example of what we are to do. Romans chapter 5 says, God demonstrates His love for us in that when we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Christ didn't come and die for us when we had managed to get our act together, when we became people worthy of His sacrificial death. Christ died for us in spite of the fact that we were not worthy. And that's how God demonstrates His love for us, and that is how we are to demonstrate our love for others. We say it every time we say the Lord's Prayer, and forgive us our trespasses, how? As we forgive those who trespass against us. You say, well, that's hard. You say, I don't want to forgive her. I understand that. But Paul says, be an imitator of God because that's how he forgave you. It is a giving love. It is a forgiving love, but it is also a giving love. James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, down from the Father of lights. Every good thing that you and I have is a gift from God, freely given. He's under no obligation. As you see, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. We have a tendency to think God needs us. I've got a, I've got a revelation for you. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Now, He may want us, but the only reason He wants us is why? Because He is loving. And from that loving character, God is gracious, He forgives, but He is also generous. He gives. Why did God create the world? Because He needed to? Because He needed company? He had the best company of all. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, that you can't improve upon that company. Why did God create the world? He created the world because a giving, loving person does that. That's why God creates. And here's the most amazing thing. God is not only giving in the sense that He creates the world and He gives life to all things, but He demonstrates His love most sincerely in that He gives Himself. God gives Himself. Now, if you think about it, we human beings are willing to give a lot of things, but oftentimes it's ourself that we withhold. We're, we're oftentimes willing to give almost anything. I'll give you my time. I'll give you my money. I, I, I'll give you my endorsement. But oftentimes we withhold ourselves, don't we? There's a wonderful story about this in the book of 
Genesis chapter 32. You can read it on your own. I'll just tell you the Reader's Digest condensed version of it. Uh, the story goes, you know the story of Jacob and Esau, these two brothers. And uh, Jacob stole his brother's birthright. Uh, it's really a remarkable story. They were twins. Uh, they came out of the womb, and um, Esau came out first. And because he came out first, he was the eldest. He inherited the estate by virtue of that. But the wonderful story about that is that when he came out of the womb, we're told that just as he came out of the womb, his brother hadn't come out yet, but his hand did. And his hand took hold of his brother's heel. That's what the story says. And let me tell you, if you know anything about Jacob, you know that he never stopped taking hold of things that didn't belong from him from that time forward. And he cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. And Esau vowed that he was going to kill his brother. And so Jacob fled. He fled and he fled into the wilderness. He lived for many years and he built up quite a reputation for himself. Uh, he had many herds and flocks and he had wives. He had two wives in particular that he really liked. Um, one that he liked better than another. He liked Rachel better than he liked Leah. But he was a very wealthy and propertyed man. But toward the end of his life, he decided that he wanted to go home. He wanted to go back home to his own family and to his own kin and to his own land. And so he decides that he's going to go back home. The story is told in Genesis chapter 32. But when he starts heading home, he remembers that his brother Esau is there. Now, he wonders if Esau has forgotten about what he'd done in the past. You know, and, you know it's, it's, it's old news. It's, it's, it's history. Surely we can put that behind us. You ever had that kind of a situation in your family? People have long memories, don't they? They, they don't forget that sort of thing. And Esau didn't forget it either. And Jacob sends these messengers to tell his brother Esau, I'm coming home and I'm coming to meet you. And the messengers come back. Yeah, your brother got your message and he's coming to meet you with an army. So get ready. At which point Jacob begins to tremble with fear. What is he going to do? And so he decides that the best way to... To, to, to handle the situation is, is, is to give his brother a peace offering. That's, that's what you do. You give, give him something. After all, you've stolen everything else from him. You know, give him a little something back. So he decides what he's going to do is he's going to send some of his flocks. He sends his ewe lambs out there and, and says to his servants, now take these to my brother and tell them these are a gift for my Lord Esau. And the messengers come back and they said, well, Esau thanks you very much for the ewe lambs. Okay, and he's still coming with an army. Okay, so then he decides to give him some of the best of his cattle. He says, now, here, give him the cattle. And so you see the cattle going off with the messengers, and they said, uh, yeah, he's thankful for the cattle, but he's still coming with an army. And over and over again, what Jacob is doing is he's giving up all of these things, and finally he looks around and there's nothing left except for Rachel and Leah, these two wives. And Rachel's the good-looking one. So he says, all right, Leah, sorry. But he sends Leah on as a gift to Esau. And the message comes out, he's still coming for you. And finally, Jacob has nothing left. And he turns to Rachel and he says, honey, I love you, and I'm sorry. But it's you or me, and it ain't going to be me. And he sends Rachel on as well. Until finally, Jacob is there all alone. And the message that he receives is, your brother's coming, and he's coming for you. 
See, Esau didn't want all of these things. What Esau wanted was Jacob. And oftentimes that's the way we are. We will give all of these things, but we don't want to give ourselves, do we? Yeah, that's what God does. God, God in His giving nature, in His love, gives Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes down and He takes on human flesh, frail human flesh. He becomes subject to death, even death upon a cross. It is a giving love. It's also a living love. That is to say, it is practical and it is active. It is exactly what is described there at the end of chapter 4. It is kindness to one another. It is tenderheartedness. It is a willingness to forgive one another, even when we have been wronged. To forgive others their trespasses as we ourselves have been forgiven. It is a love that is eternal. It is not predicated upon the condition or the circumstances. It is eternal. That is the kind of love that you and I are to have toward one another. It's very interesting, the word that Paul uses here. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. The word for imitator is the Greek word imitate. It's the word from which we get the term, actually the, the Greek word is mimite, it's the word from which we get our word imitate, and it's also the word from which we get our term mimic. What's a mimic? A copycat. It's exactly what a mimic is. Now, some people are really good mimics. Have you ever seen Rich Little? Remember Rich Little? He could imitate or mimic practically anyone. And I once saw an interview with Rich Little and said, how did you learn to imitate all, imitate all these people? It didn't matter who they were, you could do it. And he said, I watched them. I watched them closely. I watched their movies. I spent time with them if I had the opportunity. And that's the only way, he said, you learn how to be an expert mimic. You spend time with them. If you and I are called to be imitators of God, where do we learn to do that? How do we learn to mimic God? The only way you do it is if you spend time with God. Now, there are ways to do that, of course. You do that through the reading of Scripture. That is true. You do that in prayer. You do that by attending church and holy communion. But that's the only way that you learn how to mimic God is if you spend time, quality time with God. Have you ever known couples that the older they get, the more alike they become? She's suddenly able to finish all of his sentences, whether he wants her to or not. <laughs> They've spent so much time together that they begin to look alike. They begin to act alike. The two become one. And that is what God calls us to do. That's what Paul is saying. We need, if we're going to change this world that is filled with so much confusion, so much doubt, so much fear, so much trouble, the best thing we can do is to imitate God. Mimic Him. And to do that, we must spend time with Him. 
Paul goes on to say, therefore, walk as children of the light. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It's interesting to us that Paul should go from talking about imitating God to immediately talking about sex. <laughs> that seems like a, a sudden shift. Why do you think Paul did that? He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The next verse is, but sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now you say to yourself, whoa, whoa wait a minute, that's a sudden shift. Why does Paul go from talking about being imitators of God and love and giving love and forgiving love and all of that to suddenly talking about sex? <laughs> doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, actually it does when you consider the fact that Paul was writing as a pastor. This wasn't meant to be just a theological treatise. This epistle to the Ephesians was written to people who were really struggling and if you want to start contrast between the ways of this world and the ways of God, between the ways of darkness and the ways of light, between walking in darkness and walking in the marvelous light of the gospel, Paul felt that there was probably no better example for the Ephesians to think about than this whole issue of human sexuality. It was a huge problem in Paul's day. Huge problem. And what made it even worse was the fact that sex was not only a part of everyday life, the Greeks and the Romans were absolutely obsessed with the subject, but it was also a part of religious life. Almost every aspect of religious life in the first century, except for Judaism, dealt with human sexuality in some way. When we first started this study of Ephesians, I pointed out to you that the great temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world that was built there in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. Diana is what the Romans called her, the goddess of the hunt. Now you say, well, it's the goddess of the hunt. Yes, but in her local form, she was a sexual being. She was a grotesque, multi-breasted figure, a goddess of fertility. That is Artemis of the Ephesians, incidentally. And there was a whole guild of silversmiths there in Ephesus that built little or made little idols like that, were sold to people. And in that great temple to Artemis or Diana, the goddess of the hunt, people engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality by engaging the cultic prostitutes that ran the temple. In Corinth, where Paul went, you know, he wrote two letters to the Corinthians, the great temple that was there, the most impressive temple in that very important city. Uh, Corinth sits on a narrow isthmus between the mainland of Greece to the north and the Peloponnese to the south. So all trade going north to south, all trade going east to west had to go through Corinth. Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world, second only to Rome. And it had a magnificent temple. And the temple was dedicated to who? Aphrodite, Venus, the goddess of love. And at one point, it was the wealthiest temple in the ancient world. 
it, it had over 1,000 cultic prostitutes and sex slaves who plied their trade in that port city. It's just that one temple. In Rome, there was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was magnificent. It, too, was one of the wonders of the ancient world, and it was built entirely of money produced in the brothels of Rome. Now, that's the world in which they lived, and it is the world in which you and I live. As I said, when we think about love, what do we think about? We think about eros. But that's not what Paul was talking about. I think it's appropriate that Paul should suddenly move. I don't think it's a shift at all. I think it's a perfect segue into contrast between walking in darkness and walking in light. And if you don't think this is a problem for our day and age, I just want to read to you a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is a wonderful one. He said, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on stage. Now, suppose you came into a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? This is a problem in Paul's day. It is a problem in our day as well. And what Paul wants to highlight is how these wonderful things that were gifts from God unfortunately have been perverted. That's what we've done with love. Love was a wonderful thing. It is part of the character of God. But we have taken that agape love, that self-sacrificing, self-emptying love, and we have perverted it and we've turned it into something base. And it's lost its power to captivate. It's lost its power to transform. Now we're going to explore this in greater detail next week, but I just want to read to you a brief quote from a book. I know I recommend a lot of books in here. I'm an avid reader, and uh, I encourage you to be avid readers as well. And there's some good literature, there's some bad literature out there. This is one of the best books that you will ever read on the subject. It's called Adam and Eve After the Pill. Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. It's written by a woman by the name of Mary Eberstadt. She is a research fellow at the Hoover Institute and consulting editor to Policy Review. She's written a host of books and documents, a wonderful book, but it helps us to understand what the sexual revolution has really done. And here's what she said. This is just a brief quote from her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill. She said, the pill, it was thought, removed the consequences of sex. That's what the birth control pill was supposed to do. Now you can go out and you can have sex. And you don't have to worry about the consequences, do you? The consequences being what? Pregnancy. It was only after the introduction of the pill that the phrase recreational sex came into vogue. Because now it's not about producing children. Now it's about what? Recreation. You can do it for fun. She says, however, this pill that was thought to remove the consequences of sin also appears to have removed the notion of romance. In the post-revolutionary world, when she says post-revolutionary, she means the post-sexual revolution, 
Sex is easier had than ever before. But the opposite appears true for romance. This is perhaps the central enigma that modern men and women are up against, romantic want in a time of sexual plenty. Perhaps some of the modern misery of which so many women today so authentically speak is springing not from sexual desert, but from sexual flood. A torrent of poisonous imagery beginning now for many in childhood that has engulfed women and men only to beach them eventually somewhere alone and apart, far from the reach of one another. Between bad ideas of gender neutrality and even worse ideas of the innocence of pornography, we reach the world so vividly described by so many dissatisfied women today, one where men act like stereotypical women and retreat from real relationships into a fantasy life via pornography, and where women conversely act like stereotypical men, taking the lead and leaving their marriages and firing angry charges on the way out of frustration and withheld sex. It was not supposed to happen that way, but it has. Enlightened people following the sexual revolution only meant to take the small s sex out of marriage. The unwanted gender division, but along the way, capital S sex appears to have headed for the exits along with it, at least for a vocal and embittered minority. This lack of sexual intimacy and a world awash in sexual imagery is worth meditating upon. That's the world in which we live, isn't it? <laughs> we have more sex than ever before, and yet we long for romance, for intimacy, for love, which seems to be more fleeting than ever before. Well, that's why Paul makes this shift. Because God was so gracious and so good, and we took that which was good and we twisted it, we perverted it, we debased it. And if the world is ever to walk in the light and no longer walk in the darkness, we as Christians, we need, we need to reclaim that which is our rightful heritage. We need to be imitators of God. Loving one another, not as the world loves, but as God in Christ loved us. We are called to mimic God. And in order to mimic God, we need to spend time with God. When we come back next week, we'll take a look at this whole subject, this whole subject of human sexuality and how we have twisted it and how Paul gives us a recipe for reclaiming it in a world that is desperate, not just for physical satisfaction, but for a satisfaction of the soul and the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul's words to us today. Help us to be imitators of our Father in heaven. Grant us the grace, the courage, the strength to live differently from the world, to not walk in darkness, but to walk in light, to put off the deeds that lead to death and put upon us the, the great clothing of light. Help us to love as Christ loved us, for in so doing, we change the world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.